Hey everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 14 of the Coffee and Grace Podcast. Today, I am so honoured to be joined by Taryn Argue, who is a mama to two beautiful children, Tate and Reese. Taryn's journey to motherhood was not an easy one. Before they had their first child, they had never stepped foot in a neonatal intensive care unit. She learned very quickly that the NICU was a complete roller coaster, and although she was incredibly grateful for her beautiful little boy, she was overwhelmed with fear, anxiety, and uncertainty every single day for seven weeks. They knew they wanted to continue to grow their family, despite all the setbacks and complications they had with their first. After undergoing many procedures and a surgery, she was so hopeful that their next baby would be full-term and healthy. Unfortunately, that was not the case. She was 29 weeks pregnant with her baby girl when she found out she was in preterm labor. The next two weeks were spent trying to meet the needs of her first child while navigating bed rest, hospitalization, and eventually another preterm delivery. Their little girl Reese spent the next six weeks in the NICU overcoming many hurdles and obstacles that premature babies face. Join me as Taryn shares intimate details of her NICU journey, the emotional and mental strain it had on her, and how she continues to advocate for her babies by providing a safe community for mamas who have had to rise through hard motherhood. I hope you enjoy. Every journey to motherhood is unique. Some of us have more difficult paths to navigate, while others follow the straight and narrow, hitting bumps further on down the road. Hi, I'm Sonia. I'm a mom whose journey to motherhood did not come easy. Here at Coffee and Grace, we have open and honest conversations about motherhood, provide hope to those who are anxiously waiting to become a mama, and a community where you can truly feel safe to speak your truth. The conversations here are honest, true, hard, and beautiful. Go find your coffee. Welcome to Coffee and Grace. And remember, you're not alone on this journey. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Coffee and Grace podcast. I'm your host, Sonia, and today I am joined by Taryn, who is a mama to two beautiful children. I am so excited for our conversation, and I'm so thankful to have you on the podcast to share your experience through the NICU. So welcome, Taryn. I'm so happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. I am super, super excited to be here with you. So like I mentioned in my introduction, today's conversation will be all about Taryn's journey through the NICU. Not only did she experience the NICU with her first child, she also had to spend time in the NICU with her second child as well. But before we dive into all of that, can you start off by telling us, um, telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and your family and your two kiddos? For sure. So obviously, my name is Taryn. Um, I have a husband, Derek. And like Sonia mentioned, I have two kids. So I feel like we live just a super normal life. Um, my husband and I are both teachers. We are in bigger Saskatchewan, which is kind of just outside of Saskatoon. Um, and so Derek works full time as a teacher. I have been staying home since having Tate. Um, and we're going to get a little bit into this a little longer or kind of like down the road, I guess. But um Obviously, our kind of journey to parenthood was completely bombarded. We had no idea that we would be in the NICU. And so it's been a really long journey to kind of grow our family. But um, 
yeah, I'm grateful to be here and I'm grateful to be a part of your podcast because I have been here kind of listening and supporting for a long time. Um, yeah, just super grateful to be a part of it. Yes. And I'm, I'm so excited to have you here. And um, Taryn and I have met um, through social media and then we just connected just really on an intimate level when we decided to share both of our stories with each other. And Taryn's just like such an honest and down to earth type person. And I just felt like, even though we really haven't met in person, I just felt such a connection when we chatted and shared our stories with each other. And Taryn also runs a podcast. So I want to give you the opportunity to speak a little bit about your community and your podcast and what that looks like. Okay. Well, thank you. I feel like you and I have very similar missions. We go about it maybe a little bit differently and our um, community is maybe a little bit different, but also like very intertwined. Um, So I remember when I was sitting in the NICU with Tate, my oldest, I just felt this really... um, like this really strong pull to somehow honor his journey. And it took me a really long time to figure out kind of what that was going to look like. But ultimately it led to um, the Messy Mama podcast and community on Instagram. And so I bring on every month, I bring on two guests and those guests kind of talk about any sort of positive parenting. So, or advocacy even. Um, So I have like a plus size mom coming on to talk all about like plus size birth and pregnancy and all of that stuff. Um, The reality of black motherhood episode is coming up kind of all of those like hard topics, um, but that are so, so important. And then twice a month, I bring on moms just like you, Sonia, who have been through that really hard, messy side of motherhood. Um, And so kind of coming up or just as a quick example, I've done lots of like NICU moms. Um, You are somebody coming up on in season two. So the journey to adoption. Um, We have a mom who just lost a three month old to SIDS. We have a mom who went through like a really hard postpartum um, OCD and intrusive thoughts journey. So really just kind of spotlighting those moms who know that hard side of motherhood like you and I do, because I think that where you and I can really relate is that even though our journeys don't necessarily look the same, it's just very comforting when you can have conversations and know that, okay, I don't know how you feel, but I know what it feels like to be in that like helpless, really hard um, situation. So I think that's why you and I have, have been able to connect on such a deep friendship level because we have been through those really hard times in motherhood. Um, and fortunately not everyone experiences that, but I think those of us who do are just really able to kind of connect through it. Absolutely. And I think one thing that is the same about both of our communities and platforms is we both went through, like you describe it, that really messy and hard journey to motherhood, even post-motherhood, or once we actually were blessed with children as well, like it wasn't over then. And I think um, Mm -hmm. the one thing is we both felt during those really, really hard times, even before I became a mom, and same with you, we just felt like super isolated and we went through our journeys in silence Mm -hmm. and in isolation. And I think we both just knew that no other woman, no other mother should have to go through that again. And I think that's really where... A lot of it is the communities we are building are something that you and I could have used during our own journeys. Um, And although Mm -hmm. it helped me now, I sure could have used, you know, this 
the community you're building and the same with the community I'm building when I was actually going through it. So I think that we're trying, I think we're both trying to be leaders and building that community for other women and other mothers so they don't have to go exactly things alone or feel the shame or the stigma or the guilt or whatever, right? Yes. And it's funny, like you and I have talked about this lots, how we both have such incredible support systems. Like I have really great friends. I have an amazing husband who is super hands-on. I have family who was willing to be at the NICU at the drop of a hat, but it's so different when it's happening to you. And even with all of that incredible support, you still felt, or I still felt this really deep sense of like, almost loneliness Mm -hmm. through it. And like, I felt like nobody could understand me, but I realized that I just didn't have the right Mm -hmm. in air quotation marks, the right people around me. And so it really took me getting home or even as I was sitting in the NICU, I started to find people on Instagram and I was reading blogs and just like doing anything that I could to find people. And like you said, four years ago, that wasn't as readily available as it is now. Yeah. I completely agree too. And when I have conversations with women who've been through the IVF or through infertility or adoption, I'm like, man, I wish I would have talked to you, you know, X amount of years ago. Like, mm-hmm. And so, although it's still healing now, but I'm not in the thick of those journeys in the same way. And so it's just different, but in the same breath, um, now that we're, you know, we're both moms, I think we, there's also the piece of just supporting that real and honest motherhood, which sometimes we don't see on social mm-hmm. media. And I know, um, in my first few months of motherhood, um, I really felt that way. Like, I just felt like it was so fake and a highlight reel. And I just felt like I was doing it wrong. And I just wanted to talk with other women who were showing the real parts or at least talking about the real parts of motherhood, too. So I think we yes. try to do that as well, honor the hard stories, but also the real and the messy part of motherhood. That's the everyday as well. Yeah. Exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah. Well, thank you. Like I said, thank you again. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. I have not spoken with anyone um, really up close and personal about their NICU journey. I've chatted with a lot of moms when they've talked about their journey to motherhood and NICU was a part of it, but the, the meat, like the real pieces of what we talked about were more their, maybe their infertility or their IVF or their adoption mm. piece of it. So I'm really excited just to really sit down and talk about it and not just like the medical side, but like all the other pieces of the journey that you felt. And hopefully that can come out as we speak as well, because I think a lot of mm-hmm. the, that's the piece that maybe we don't hear about, or it's not something you could really like Google search, right? It's just, it's so intimate, that emotional, and it's nothing that you can possibly prepare for, I don't think, in some ways as well. So yeah, like that might come on. And And I think, no, go ahead, turn. Absolutely. And I think it's, I think it's funny, because when people ask you about or like, for example, if they ask me about our journey, it's so easy to talk about the medical side of things. And I'm sure you feel kind of similar with the IVF um, journey that you had. It's just, it's like it's robotic and just on repeat for me. Like I can just blab off all of that. Mm -hmm. But once you start, I'll never forget the first conversation that you and I had, and we were actually FaceTiming and talking about it. And it just felt so good to talk about like the emotional side and just get those feelings out. And I think that that's been um, super healing for me with having my own podcast, but then also doing something like this is 
it just the more that you can talk about that emotional side of things, the more you can heal from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm happy to to talk about absolutely anything. Awesome. Well, I am so excited. So let's just dive right in. And I know on my podcast, um, when I chat with women, uh, and a big piece of when I chat with women is really not just talking about motherhood, but talking about the journey to motherhood. And that's a big piece of of my story as well. Like it wasn't just when I became a mom, it got hard. It was the journey to even Mm -hmm. becoming a mom was excruciating and hard. And I know you can agree with that as well. So I I want you to start off by just kind of getting, um, giving us a little bit of a, a history of like, did you have issues conceiving? Did you just try conceiving? What did that look like? Your thoughts about being like what your journey to motherhood looked like? Um, Things like when you wanted to build your family, what pregnancy was like. Um, Mm -hmm. And then perhaps that's maybe where some complications came through and maybe not. Maybe the complications came through after. So if you can just give us a little bit of a um, as much history as maybe you were aware, you might be more aware what that looked like with your second child going through what you did with your first. But um, what did that sort of look like for you when you decided I want to become a mom and we're going to start this process? What did that look like for you? Yeah, so <laughs> it's funny when I think back, like how fast my husband and I moved, but we were together for like two years. We got engaged um, and we were planning our wedding and it was going to be a year and a few months down the road like that next summer. And at the time that we got engaged, actually, and I've actually never even told this story, but one of my cousins had a blood clot in her arm, which led them to doing lots of tests. And they found out that she had factor five laodin, and that's a blood clotting disorder. Um, and it's very heavily passed in women's genes through a family. And so all of us girl cousins got tested and I came back positive that I had it. And one of the things that goes along with that is, um, a high risk of miscarriages. And so at that point, Derek and I had been engaged for a while, by the time we kind of got the test results back. And that was one of the things that my doctor had said I had to quit birth control because it, um, the hormones are like, they aren't good to go with blood clotting. However, (laughs) however English would say that. Um, and so we decided we knew that we wanted to be parents right away after we got married, we were young, but we both just felt very called to do it early on. Um, and so we started trying before the wedding. And our thought process was that if we were to get pregnant and like heaven forbid lose the baby, at least we're like on this journey now. And it's not like five years after the wedding right. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of started trying and we got pregnant about three months into trying. And so I was actually 17 weeks pregnant at our wedding, which it was funny because some people knew and some people didn't. (laughs) So it was like a nice little like reveal when I had to get a wedding dress the day before because it didn't, (laughs) mine didn't fit me. So it was just a very interesting dynamic. Um, But at my first dating ultrasound, Derek and I, young happy, like over the moon to be pregnant. We go in and just to like a general ultrasound place and the tech puts it on my tummy and she's asking us questions. And all of a sudden she just stops in the middle of her sentence. And she's like, wow, like I have never seen this before. You have two uteruses. And she was almost like excited (laughs) about it. 
And Derek and I were both like, okay, what does that mean? Yeah. Like, is that good? But then that's all she would tell me. And I think that it was almost a slip up that she had because right. she wasn't supposed to, you know, how that is. Yep. And so she was like, okay, you need to take, or I'm going to go and get my supervisor. And so this other tech came in and she's like, okay, so it looks like you have what's called like a bicornuate uterus. So I had a wall dividing my uterus completely in half, but then a normal women's uterus is supposed to look like a wisdom tooth. Like the, there's two kind of like, um, parts that hang down on the bottom and mine didn't have that. So mine was a complete heart shape with a wall through the middle. And that basically happened while I was in utero. It just didn't form properly. And so I was immediately referred to, um, a specialist obstetrician who worked specifically with women who had like uterus issues, <laughs> however you would properly say that. Yeah. And so we were deemed high risk instantly. Um, basically because at that, once you were pregnant, it was really hard to, for them to tell like, okay, what is the true shape of her uterus? Is that wall connecting at the top and the bottom? Is the baby going to be able to grow and push through that wall so that they have enough room? Um, is the baby going to get enough blood flow? Is the baby going to get all the nutrients? Like it was just a lot of what felt like unknown to us. And so, my pregnancy consisted of a lot of appointments. I think with Tate, I had nine ultrasounds. My first one was at eight weeks and I had him at 30 weeks. So I had a lot um, of ultrasounds and every appointment that I had was with my specialist. It wasn't just with um, like my family doctor anymore. Um, so it just felt like a lot, but we were also just so naive to what that meant like we never actually talked about the chance of the baby being born preterm um, because things just looked good and things were just progressing well and so the OB was never really super concerned and if she was she didn't let us know that she was right um so yeah it was just this really weird looking back I'm kind of like okay how weren't we freaking out more like if I knew then what I know now, I would have probably felt a lot different. But I think we were just in that like wedding chaos, plus just being really excited to be fine, like to be becoming parents, um, that it just kind of the, there was no fear. And I was so sick. I, I think you and I can relate to each other yeah. on this too. I was sick all day and all night until like 27 weeks. And so it just, because we had so many appointments and the baby was always fine, I think we just thought everything was going to be okay, um, basically until it wasn't, if that makes that sense. That makes sense. So tell us, kind of lead us into like when it became not okay. So you said you were, you your pregnancy besides the medical you know, not issues, but you know, your uterus, you had two uteruses. Okay. That's quite unique. That's a special type of thing. That's not very normal. <laughs> that's not something you hear every day. Um, and then you you were sick throughout your pregnancy, somewhat normal in regards to like being sick. Mm -hmm. When did things become not normal? Um, where maybe you went into, did you go into labor? Did you start having other types of complications? So talk about what that journey to your first son Tate looked like. So 
I should back up a little bit. Okay. Like early on around that like 15 weeks, I had a ton of bleeding all of a sudden. And okay. so instantly my thought was miscarriage. Right. And so we went to the hospital um, and I was admitted just for observation for the night because it had happened at about 10 o'clock and no other symptoms other than bleeding and a little bit of cr- uh, of cramping, but my cervix was still closed and everything looked good. Okay. So now fast forward to 30 weeks, it was October 13th and we had all the Halloween candy bought. <laughs> and so naturally, what are we doing? We're sitting and eating all of the Halloween yeah, candy. Totally. And go to bed feeling totally fine. And I wake up at like, I felt kind of weird as we were watching TV and like eating Halloween candy. But I'm like, okay, I've just eaten too much. Like, I'm just going to go to bed. (laughs) I just kind of felt off. Um, Like, not sick, not in labor, nothing like that. I was just like, man, I'm tired. Like, I'm going to go to bed. So at about 2 o'clock in the morning, I wake up to go pee totally normal. I'm 29 weeks and six days pregnant. And I swing my leg out of bed to go to the bathroom and I just dropped onto the floor and I thought that I had dislocated my hip. Okay. And so my husband who sleeps like a log just continues, (laughs) continues sleeping. Like he is having the best sleep of his life. And I like get myself up and I'm like, God, that hurt. Like, okay, I'm just going to go to the bathroom. I kind of like felt my stomach and I was totally good. So go to the bathroom, come back, get into bed and like cannot sleep. I'm having the worst back pain that I've ever experienced in my life and I'm uncomfortable and it seems like it's coming and going, but it just never really let up. And so I finally wake Derek up and I'm like, babe, you got to rub my back. Like, I think I might've like put my hip out or like pulled my, put my back out. Like, I don't know. And so long story short, after like two hours of this, he's like, we're going to the hospital. So we live in a small town. And for some reason, there was no doctor at the hospital. And so when we get there, they're like, continue on, like go to Rosetown. And my husband's like, no, like I'm telling you that my wife is 30 weeks pregnant right now and we don't know what's happening. And they were just like, sorry, there's no doctor. We can't let you in, like continue on. And so I was like, okay, take me home. I'm good. Like, I am good. And thankfully, Derek knows me enough to know that I was not good. So we actually drove to a town 35 minutes away, but in the complete opposite direction of the city that is like the closest birthing center. Right. And so when we get there, um, they instantly check me and I'm three centimeters dilated and I'm having full on contractions, but I had all back labor, which is really normal with premature birth, like premature, um, babies. Okay. And so they didn't even feel like contractions. Like at no point was I like, oh, this is deliver. Like this is labor. Right. I was just like, my back my feels back like is. it's going to fall yeah. off of me. Right. So they throw me in an ambulance within like, it was like six minutes of me after they checked me. I was in an ambulance and we're like flying to Saskatoon, not flying, driving, but just driving very fast. (laughs) And we get to Saskatoon at six o'clock. I was totally like, they're trying to get gravity to help you. So my feet are up in the air and my head is like close to the ground. And so I'm losing like feeling in my leg. I have no blood left in my legs. Um, 
I'm super uncomfortable. And when I get there, they're basically like, okay, this baby is coming, but we're going to try to do everything to stop it. And so what they do is they give you magnesium and steroids. The steroids are for the baby's lungs to kind of speed up, um, not speed up, uh, what's it called? All I'm thinking is production. And I know that development. That's it. So yeah, not to speed up development, but my understanding is that it kind of lubricates the lungs so that when the baby is born, the lungs don't stick together. Like it gives them a better chance of being able to breathe on their own. Um, and so they gave me this medication and they also hope that when they give that to you, that sometimes it like calms your uterus and will stop contractions and they can kind of delay um, the delivery. That didn't work for me. I was in like full blown um, labor. I was six centimeters by the time we got to the hospital. Um And he came super fast, like he was ready to come out um, at eight centimeters. So within like probably two more hours or so of me being at the hospital, I delivered him at eight centimeters Um, and he was born. He was three pounds, nine ounces, born at like 948 in the morning. And then, yeah, we went from literally not even knowing that I was in um, labor within like five hours or so he was like born and we were in the NICU. That is insane. Like, and I've heard that piece of your story before, but every time I hear it, it just like, that's just crazy. Especially like you were younger, a first time mom. Like that's just, I don't mm-hmm. think anything really prepares you for that. Like that's not something that, um, well, and I didn't take prenatal classes, but I feel like that's not really a topic that they talk about is like, they might talk about preterm labor and preterm delivery. I think those are topics that get brought up, but I think what you experienced was just nothing you could have imagined and fathomed. So you're a young new mom, you have this baby who's so little, um, and you're sitting in the hospital. So play us what is going on. You obviously, we all know based on the topic of today's conversation that you spent time in the NICU, but how Mm -hmm. was Kate doing? How were you doing? How scary was that experience for you? What sort of happened next? Yeah. So it just, it feels like there's so many things that were just so wrong with our situation. And I think that that's really common with, um, preterm deliveries because it's happening so fast. And there's this fear of the baby coming. Like, it's not like we went into the hospital and we were just so excited and we had been waiting and preparing. And I was uncomfortable because I was so big and, you know, hoping to give birth soon. We just, we were not there yet. We hadn't had prenatal classes. Like you said, nothing. We were literally that day. We just turned 30 weeks pregnant. And it just also felt like, um, when we got there, like it almost felt like I wasn't being heard. Like I was saying, my body is pushing, my body is pushing. And it was like, nobody believed me. Um, and so we were actually in an observation room. We weren't even in a delivery room when Tate came and when I started like really freaking out and I always like to tell this part of the story because I'm like, if you are a first time mom and you need help, tell them that it feels like you're going to poop your pants because (laughs) at that point, everyone runs to you. So 
that's basically what happened. I was just like, my body is pushing. Yep. It feels like I need to go to the washroom. And he was born like very quickly. Um, and because we were in that observation room, when the NICU team comes in, they base they on obviously need room to work, right? So they put your baby in, and I'm I'm not actually sure if this is the same as like a full term um, delivery, but they put your baby on that um, isolate that's in the room, and then that's where the nurse would basically like check him over and wrap him up and bring him to you or whatever. Um, but as soon as Tate was born, they didn't even call out gender, um, and because there was so like the NICU team has so many people involved in it the room wasn't big enough for them to work on the baby in that room. So they actually took him across the hallway. And so I didn't know that he was a boy and he was gone so fast that we didn't actually, we heard him cry. Like he screamed, but then he kind of stopped. And I don't know to this day if that was because he was like across the hallway and I was kind of in shock right? or if he actually stopped crying. Um, and at that point, the one um, nurse was like, oh, dad, you can go. And so Derek, like not really knowing what's happening, he went across the hall. And so I just remember um, laying there and then doctor being like, OK, honey, like we have to deliver your placenta now. And I was just in such shock. She kept telling me to push and I just wasn't really responding to her. And I remember she came up to my head and she's just like, it's going to be OK. Like." we'll update you as soon as we can, but you need to get, we need to get the placenta out. And because my uterus was odd, the placenta wouldn't deliver. And so she basically had to manually like pull it out of me. And that hurt way worse than having Tate. So I was like in so much shock that by the time I really realized like what was happening, Derek was standing there being like, do you want me to go to the NICU? Like, do I stay with you? Like our parents were both traveling hours away to get to us and there was no one there with me. And I just remember being like, go, like you go to the NICU, like go and just be with him. And so that feeling of, I didn't know if he was going to be alive because I had no past experience with premature babies. I didn't like, I knew that he was a boy, but I didn't even see him. And so it was like, it didn't actually click for me. And then all I wanted was Derek to be with him. But then that left me being by myself. That was probably to this day, one of the most traumatic experiences for me because I felt so alone, but I also felt selfish for feeling alone. Yeah. If that makes sense. It does. Make sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was probably, that was really hard. And because I had that factor five, um, I burst all the blood vessels in my face and in my neck and in my arms. And so they were really worried about the blood flow. And so I was having lots of tests done. And before I could even stand up out of bed, I had to have like another round of blood work done. And so at this point, it's probably, I had him at 948. It's probably noon and I haven't been allowed to stand up out of bed. And Derek, what they do when you have a NICU baby is they basically take them in, um, 
he was intubated. So they, you know, they put the tube down their, their throat. They get the IV going for them. They do like the heel prick to get um, their blood sugar. They get all the monitors set up and everything. And so Derek actually sat and waited in the waiting room for probably an hour and a half before he was allowed into the NICU to see him. And they, and then they walk him through and prep him. And so this whole time I'm going through all of this alone. And because we left the house in such a gong show, I didn't have, my phone was dead. And so I wasn't even in communication with Derek. So I was just laying there wondering like, yeah, okay, is my baby alive? What's Derek doing? Like, and it's so twisted, but I remember thinking like, is he just sitting and cuddling him? Like, why didn't he come back to me? Like yeah. what? what's the status here? Um, and are my paperwork for the blood draw got lost in shuffle. And so I sat there at, until about two o'clock until I finally, um, my in-laws were there by that point. And I finally just stood up out of bed and was like, I am like, I'm unplugging myself. I'm like, I'm going to go to the NICU. You let the blood person know that I'll be back in a while, but I'm going. Um, so yeah, it was, it was hours before I actually got to the NICU. Um, and that whole like five hour, I think it was five hours before I got to see him. It was like, I literally experienced every emotion under the sun. And then I felt guilty for almost every one of those emotions that I experienced. So it was a lot that was, yeah, that was a lot to handle. It's interesting that you share that. Um, although our experiences, I don't have a NICU experience, but I did have to go through an emergency C-section and just hearing the pieces that you talked about in regards to not really being seen or heard and then knowing something is wrong. And then like, I didn't get to see my daughter till probably over three and a half hours after she was born. And then mm -hmm. I didn't know where Drew was either. And I was alone, remember waking up on an operating because since I, I had to be put under for the emergency C-section. So it wasn't, I wasn't awake during it. Drew wasn't with me. I was all, so I remember waking up and being like, did I have a baby? Like what's going on? Similar. Still, obviously I wasn't at 30 weeks. I was 36 weeks at the time, but I just hearing what you're saying in regards to that feeling of guilt and then feeling just wanting to know if your baby's okay. And I just remember like they're looking after the baby. So that's their first priority and not really looking after you mm -hmm. as the mom. And I remember having so many questions like, is she okay? Or like, and it wasn't even, I wasn't really worried about me, but I just remember like, they just didn't really give me a lot of answers. All I was told that mm -hmm. she was healthy. So that was good. Like she was good. They said, Drew will be with her until I'm okay to see her, but it'll be a few hours. Um, I just got out of surgery. We'll just have to wait everything. But it's just like, well, what do you mean? Like, what? where's Drew? Like, why isn't he with me? And so I can just... I can understand that feeling of you needing support because you went through something so traumatic, but you want your baby to be looked after, but you really don't know who's with your baby, what's going on with your baby. So, and I just couldn't imagine having that extra layer of your baby being so premature and hooked up to all these tubes and you still are feeling like disconnected, like you're their mother, right? You should be there looking at mm -hmm. them and taking care of them. So I, I can understand that from a parallel level, like what that can somewhat feel like. And so just hearing it again from you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, 
labor and delivery is such a unique experience because you go into the hospital and you are like all the people care about of course they're monitoring the baby but it's like physically you and you have like all the attention on you and you say something and everyone's listening right and then it felt like as soon as the baby was born yes there were no eyes on me and everything on the baby and you're grateful for that but at the same time right women like what you just went through is so traumatic. Even if you have the best delivery, right? Like ever, your body still just went something through something so traumatic. Right. And so, something that I always just wonder is how is there not now like one nurse that is still with you, yes. hands on, like caring for you, and then the another one to go with the baby. Totally, I remember thinking because you now have two patients. Yes, I remember thinking the exact same thing, and. The only peace of mind I had was they said like Everly was healthy. So at least I knew in my mind she was okay, even if I couldn't be there. But I still felt like, like, what about me? Like, I'm not okay. Like what I just went through was very traumatic and I don't feel Mm -hmm. okay. And the one person, my safe person is no longer with me. And I don't even know where I am right now in the hospital. Like I wake up in a strange room, not even the same room I was going through labor. So I just, yeah, I agree. I think, I think there can be a better system, which we could probably get into deeper, but I agree. I just feel like they're Regardless, like you said, if you had the best labor and delivery, if there is a way, but your body still went through something so traumatic, we need to be Mm -hmm. there for that mom postpartum right away. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Totally agree. Okay. So talk us through your first time walking through the NICU or at least seeing your son for the first time. What was that like? How scary that was? How I'm sure it was a lot of emotions. Um, Walk us through Mm -hmm. what that was like. So once I was um, cleared, I kind of fought my way. (laughs) And then they're like, yeah, no, you actually get back in bed. And I couldn't go until I was showered off anyways. So once I finally went, Derek was with me. And um, it was, I've tried to explain this before. I feel like until you witness a NICU firsthand, it's not something that you will ever grasp the true like magnitude of it. Right. But essentially you walk in and you scrub in into this big like surgical scrub sink, basically. Um, And I was okay to walk. So I was physically walking and I just felt like I was floating. It was the most out of body experience that I have ever had. But I remember walking up to him and just being like, in complete awe because I loved him so much. But I also remember looking at him and one of the first things I felt was like, like, what have I done? Mm. How, how did this happen? Like, why does he need to suffer? Like, what could, I didn't ever think like, what could I have done differently? But I just remember being like, what have I done that he is now in this state? And keep in mind, and I think that it's important for me to say that he was at, he was 30 weeks. There are babies born at 23 weeks. And so he would three and a half pounds would be a dream for 23 weaker moms. And I recognize that. Um, but it was a, it was so, um, intimidating 
I, I didn't get to hold him until the next day, like a, probably about 35 hours after. Um, but once I did just to get him out of the, out of his isolate. So he's in an enclosed isolate that is heated to a certain temperature. So they really don't want you having it open a ton. Um, he was intubated. So he had the tube down his throat, which then was like taped. So his whole, both of his cheeks were kind of smushed together because the tape was so tight to hold the tube in place. And I just remember looking at him and you could hardly even see his skin. He had like sensors on and there's wires and he had, um, umbilical lines. So IVs basically going through his belly button, Um, and he had like his heart rate, uh, sensor was taped to his hand and he had an IV in his head. He was just like head to toe covered with something. Mm. So that was super intimidating. And I wanted to hold him and I asked the nurse right away if I could. And she just said, I think we just need to let him rest for now. Um, And it was such a conflicting thing because I know the benefits of kangaroo care or like skin to skin. And I know the benefits of breastfeeding right away, but that just wasn't an option. And so it was this really strange like tug where it was like, I know what's good for him, but he can't have that. Mm. And so that almost just added that next layer of guilt to it. Yeah. And I'm glad that you spoke to that. Like, especially the piece, like you said, and it's just like any journey, you don't really understand it until you've walked it. But I, I'm really glad that you just sort of touched on how like scary it was and seeing your baby for the first time, like no one, nothing can prepare you for that. And Mm-mm. even hearing your story and say, I had to go through it, couldn't still not prepare you for what it's really like when you see your child or have to go through that. You no. know, so so I, but I think you did speak to it quite eloquently and just, I think it's just the way you put it, like, it's just hard to explain, but it was also like an out-of-body experience as well, just sort of walking into that. So walk us through a little bit what, it, so how long was Tate in the NICU and what did those next few weeks of your life look like? Yeah, so we were there for seven weeks. Um, because we're from Bigger, we and it's a small town. We were, we delivered him in Saskatoon and they have a really great NICU there. And so we knew that we were in really great hands, but it was really hard to navigate when you didn't live in the same city as your baby. And so I stayed at my brother's house and at Derek's cousin's house. So I just kind of like bounced between them, just kind of depending on, because one of the hard things is that like, life continues for everyone else. Right. Um, and so I felt like as incredible as they were, and both of them always told me that I was not in the way you still kind of felt in the way. And so, and I also was, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but I was also at the NICU for like 12, 15, sometimes 18 hours a day. So when I went home, I just wanted to go to my own bed. Like Mm -hmm. I was so tired of going to someone else's house when all I wanted to do was like go open my own fridge with my own groceries and my own bed to lay in with my own husband. And Mm -hmm. it just, it was, you're completely uplifted, uprooted or whatever that term is and put into a different city 
with none of your kind of safe space or safe feeling. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of stayed between the two of them. And like I said, I spent day like 12, 15, yeah. there were days when I was at the NICU for That's 18 hours a day. Karen, sorry to hold your thought, but what walk us through, I guess not really walk us through, but how long could you be there for? Like, was it like visiting hours? Were you kicked out at a certain time? Could you come and go as you please? Like, what did that look like? I've always been curious. Yeah. So there are set times that you can't be in the NICU. Um, if they're so the way that our NICU is set up and it's actually no longer like that because they've built the children's hospital, but there were, um, six or eight babies in each bay, depending on the level of care that they needed. So when you walked into the NICU, there's like bay one, bay two, bay three, all the way to bay eight. And how it was set up was bay one had kind of like the sickest babies. And then bay eight was basically the growers and feeders that were there just kind of gaining weight and learning how to eat properly. And then that's where they would be discharged from. Okay. And so twice a day, so morning and evening, they would do rounds. And that's where like the whole team of doctors would go around and talk about every single baby. So let's just as an example, when Tate was in Bay 1, those doctors would go in and there's the neonatologist, which is the head doctor or like the doctor. There was um, a dietitian that worked on the baby's feeds. There was a speech path that would work on like the baby's feedings. Um, gosh, what else was there? There was... I won't go through all of it because I'm kind of blanking, but there was probably about six or eight people on this team. And that's where they would, the nurse would give the report on like, okay, how is their night? Um, do they need any changes made? What does that look like? And while those doctors are rounding on the other babies in your bay, you can't be in there. Okay. And so every morning I would get up and I would go to the NICU and I would probably get there around 7.30. And generally, the rounds would come between like 8 and 10 o'clock. And you never really knew because it kind of depended how long, like how sick the babies were and like how long the doctors had to spend at each bedside. Um, so it was kind of a guessing game as to when they would get to your bay. But while they were in that bay, they you weren't allowed in there. So I would go for a couple hours. Once they would do the rounds, I you would go and you would sit in the waiting room and they would call you in when they round on your baby. So you'd go in, you'd kind of hear the report from the night before, you would have a chance to like ask any questions, they would kind of tell you what their thoughts are, um, give you all the information, that sort of thing. And generally those rounds would be about like five, ten-ish minutes, like that was a, a pretty long round. Um and then you would leave again until they were out of your bay. And then you could be in there all day. They, okay. The only other time that they could like kick you out or that you're not allowed in there is if there was another baby being put into your bay. So if another mom has a baby and that baby comes into the NICU and they were coming into my specific bay, yeah. I couldn't be in there. Um, or if there was like a procedure needing to be done and they had to kind of have it like sterile or they just didn't want you to watch Right. what they were doing, yeah. then they could kick you out. But for the most part, it, they're super accommodating. Like I, yeah, I was probably, I never left the NICU either, or the hospital either with Tate more so because I was staying at my brother's house and it was probably like a 20 minute drive across the city or so. 
So I would basically just once they were done rounding on Tate, then I would go and have breakfast and I'd go and I'd pack my little breakfast yeah. and go and sit somewhere in the hospital and, and eat it. So, so you basically yeah, they were really good that way throughout the whole, like as long as you could throughout the day. And you would just, you would yep. just leave when you had to rest mentally just to prepare to do it all over again the next day. Yeah. And it was, my days kind of depended. So Derek also had to continue working. He was a teacher and wasn't able to get um, a paid leave. And so financially it was very expensive for us to be in the NICU. And so he continued working. Um, and he was so great. He would come up right after school and then spend kind of the evening with me in the NICU, stay overnight. And then he would leave at like six the next morning. And that's when I would also go to the NICU. So we started to have kind of like a good routine. He was there as much as he could be. And I was basically, that was my entire life. Like my world completely stopped. And so that's, that was my only focus. And my only goal was to just help him help Tate like grow and develop until he could come home. Wow. Well, I have so many questions and I'm sure I could just sit and rack your brain just about all the medical side (laughs) of the pieces of that. But I do want to sort of touch a little bit um, in regards to like bringing baby home, the sort of life after the NICU, what that looks like. Um, And it's probably, and I suppose you don't really know because your second child, which we will get into was also a NICU baby. So you Mm -hmm. don't really know what it's like to bring a, you know, I want to say like a healthy, normal baby home. Um, I'm sure it's similar in some ways, but I know like you just, you did, you can't compare the experiences, I suppose, because it's all, you know, is the NICU, but what was it like? So it's at Tate, um, got through the NICU. You were there. You said, sorry, seven weeks. Did I get that right? Yeah. And then you were discharged. So he got strong enough to leave and you're going home. Talk to me or tell us a little bit about what that was like bringing baby home when that was sort of the only world or life you knew for seven weeks. Yeah. So it's so interesting because I started my motherhood learning how to care for my baby, um, being surrounded by like four sterile walls and it was chaos all the time and it was loud all the time and it was bright all the time. Like it was always daytime. Right. And so when we brought him home, um, we, so they, they have to be able to do certain things before they can come home. They give you this little checklist or this little house and you get a sticker every time they graduate. So we knew when we left that his lungs were good, that he was stable. We knew that he was eating enough. We knew that he could regulate his temperature. We knew that he weighed enough. Um, so we felt good, but we also had a lot of fear being an hour away from a hospital that was prepared to work on babies because our hospital just isn't. So when we got home with him, um, we were very confident in terms of like caring for him because we had, he was seven weeks old. It, it didn't feel like we had a newborn really. Right. But the really big thing, and this is kind of what I'll talk about because I could talk for 12 hours on this, but Tate was born Christmas Eve and we had him on October 14th. So it was like the middle and sorry, he came home November 30th. So he was still like 30, 
He was a 37 weeker at that point. So it was super uncomfortable knowing that he still wasn't supposed to be born yet. Right. And we were coming home in the middle of cold and flu season, which he was premature. He has a weakened immune system. Bugs are like a big no-no. And so we spent that winter completely isolated. Like I didn't take him out. If I did take him out, um, he was in his car seat the entire time. He was, no one was touching him. Um, no one was babysitting him. Like it was me and Derek and him for months. And it was, it was really weird. And this is kind of the point that I want to touch on here because a lot of times we judge moms for the way that they parent, right? Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to speculate and it is so easy to look and be like, oh, she's the helicopter mom. And I had people say that about me. But what they didn't know was that I couldn't let other people touch him because they could be sick. And I don't know when the last time they washed their hands were. So when I was grocery shopping and this nice woman asked me to if she could hold him because he was crying in his car seat and I said no and then I'm called a helicopter mom do you think that I wanted to let you hold him yes I would have loved someone else to hold my baby but I physically could not do that because he could get sick and when premature babies get sick it is not the same as when a full-term right. baby gets I was sick I'm gonna say that a cold and it goes, not a cold or a flu is just not the flu, no right we've never just had a cold in our house. It has been like my kids have had RSV. They've had double ear infections. They've had bronchitis. They've had like, it's never just a cold. And so the hardest part, honestly, was trying to show people that no, I'm not being crazy. I am literally doing what I need to do to keep my son healthy. And same with Reese when she got home. So it was very like isolating. It was nerve wracking. Every time he would cough, we were terrified that we would end up in the PICU. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, I would love to bring a full-term baby home. That is my goal (laughs) at some point. Um, but yeah, it was just, it just felt like a really high stress environment all the time. And now looking back and I've been through counseling, I I highly recommend it for anyone who has any sort of um, hard in their motherhood, really. But I 100% have like PTSD from that experience and not in the sense of like, you know, when you think of PTSD, you think of like war veterans where it's like that like shell shock. I am so scared of my kids ending back up, like ending back in the hospital because I've watched them when they couldn't breathe on their own. And I've watched their hearts almost stop beating multiple times. And so that fear has never left me. Mm. And those first few months postpartum with both of my kids, my anxiety was so high um, because you just almost felt like I couldn't trust anyone around them because I didn't. And it wasn't it wasn't me trying to be mean. It was just that like, this is my baby. He's five pounds. Yeah. And no, you can't touch him. And I feel awful saying that, but you need to respect that. Yeah. No, I totally, I can totally relate on a different level, but I understand what you're saying for sure. So when did you decide, because you have a little girl as well. So when did you decide, or when did you get to the point? Um, and I don't want to say was 
was Reese like an accident? Because I don't think any baby is an accident. But like, was she planned? Did you make the conscious decision? We are prepared to try again. Um, did you go through any testing because of your uterus to try to prevent perhaps this happening again? What did that little sort of look like for you? When did you get to that point where you're like, okay, I want to grow our family again. I feel mentally prepared. Um, Tate's at a good age or at a good stage. We feel good. Sort of walk us through what that looked like preparing for baby number two. So we always knew we wanted to have multiple kids. Um, And so one of the really hard things was that battle internally for Derek and I of like, when, like, when is it okay for this to potentially happen again? When would we ever be okay to put another baby through the NICU? And so, yes, we worked with our specialist. She was, she's absolutely incredible. I still just have so much love and respect for her, but we started doing, um, I had three different procedures and then ultimately a surgery to correct my uterus. Um, I was given a 10%, like eight or 10% um, not survival, um, success rate on the surgery. Like they did not think that it was actually going to be successful, but it was. And so what they did was they went into my uterus and, um, removed that wall, but the fear heading into that. So this was over probably about a year span. Tate was a year old. And at that point we're like, okay, let's start investigating. And it took about another year until I ended up getting that surgery. Okay. And the fear around that was that if they removed that wall in my uterus, if it was attached at the top and bottom, my uterus could collapse or be damaged. And then I wouldn't be able to care, like even really conceive or have a baby grow. Okay. And so it was actually looking back that year of like doing tests and like really painful tests and exams. And then that surgery, it was really stressful, but I wasn't okay with not knowing what was happening with my body. And I, I tell people that all the time. I, we still hope to foster. And if foster leads into adoption, we will be so grateful for that. So it wasn't this fear of like not being able to have another child grow in my tummy and deliver them. It was just this fear of like, not a fear, I guess, but just, I felt like my body failed me and I wanted to figure out why. And and I wanted answers. You wanted to maybe alleviate an issue. So you didn't have to witness another baby being incubated or hooked Mm -hmm. up tubes and trying to breathe and survive. You were trying to protect your next child from that. And I think anybody, and I don't, just listening to you say that. And I, I know you're defending that piece. And I, I never once feel that you, that was like the most important thing, like having a biological child, like you said, growing a baby in your tummy and yeah, you knew you wanted to have more. And that was the goal, like to conceive naturally, which I think is for a lot of people. Um, but knowing your experience, how can I make this a healthier experience for my future child mm-hmm. and myself, I think is, so I hear that totally when you're speaking about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that we can really relate on that. And same with Derek. Like he was just like, if you are not comfortable, like biologically having another child, I am okay with that. Like there are other really great options. But I think for me, it it wasn't like, 
it wasn't even so much a determination to carry again. It was just to figure out like what is going on with my body just because I felt so disconnected from it. And I felt so let down by it that I was like, okay, I need to figure this out. So at that time I had surgery, Tate was almost two, like he was probably like 18 months or so. Um, and anyways, it was deemed successful. And so we waited a few months and went back and did a couple more tests to basically get the go ahead that like, yes, your body will be able to support another baby. Um, and so Tate would have been like two and a bit and we're like, okay, well, we mentally, we were ready. Tate was sleeping through the night. He was getting more independent. He was, was out of that baby stage where he needed one of us all the time. And so that was kind of the point where physically I felt good. Um, we were confident in the surgery. Um, mentally we were sleeping well again, (laughs) so we felt good that way. And yeah, we started trying and it took, took about like four months with Reese, four or five months. Um, but then, yeah, we got pregnant really healthy pregnancy basic I was considered high risk again with no f- like no real real thoughts of having another preterm baby but just because they needed to monitor and everything looked great through my pregnancy with Reese again I was like a ball of sickness until like 25 weeks yeah um but everything looked good. My uterus was stretching well with her. I had like a nice thick, long cervix. It was like 3.8 centimeters. Everything looked really good. And just like Tate basically until it didn't. And so what happened with her was that at my 29 week appointment, so I was having appointments every like two and a half weeks, um, with my specialist. Um, and I went into the city that day and I went to my appointment. Um, and it's funny because I, we were so confident and I was feeling so good and I was just loving being pregnant with her. Um, we knew that she was a girl and I went into the city by myself that day and I had like a bunch of different things planned and I was going to meet a girlfriend for lunch and we were going to like, I was going to go in and just have this like nice day to myself And at my appointment, I all of a sudden, as I'm laying on the bed talking with the doctor, I had this like horrible cramping. Like it felt like somebody was squeezing, like wringing out my insides. And I was just like curled up in a ball. And she was just like, how can I help? Where do like, what do you need? And I'm just like, I don't even know. Like, I just feel like this is horrible. It didn't feel like labor like I had with Tate because it was in my stomach and I never had like front contractions with Tate. Right. And so she took me, we didn't have an ultrasound planned for that day, but she takes me in for this ultrasound. And at that point I was totally fine. Like it only lasted for like a minute. And I will never forget her face when we were like happily talking and she was asking me all about Tate and I had just, I brought a picture in for, of him for her and she was kind of like talking about it. And then she just stopped and I just, she just like kind of dropped her shoulders and I was just like, what, like what now? And she's like, I, she's like, I would like you to get dressed and, um, 
I'm going to just give you a minute, but I have some really hard news. So just kind of like get dressed and then we'll go from there. And she came in with Kleenex and she sat on the bed right next to me. She didn't even like sit on her chair across from me and she just hugged me and she's like, you are in um, active preterm labor and you need to go like straight to the hospital so I can phone Derek for you or if you're okay to phone him, but you need to get over there like right now. And so I was 29 weeks. So I was actually a week earlier than I was with Tate. Um, and I, so I had dilated my um, cervix had gone from like 3.8 centimeters down to one and I was having contractions. So long story short, because I don't think we want to get too much into this just because of time. But I was on bed rest in the hospital for two weeks. Um, Reese, of course, flipped breach. <laughs> so she was... <laughs> Like it was like, again, everything that could go wrong Went did. Wrong, yeah. So while I, yes. So when I got to the hospital, I stayed the first night and the next day I had actually started to dilate. So now not only was my cervix shortening, but I was dilated to two centimeters. Um, and so I was, yeah, I was on antepartum for two weeks. I was supposed to get out one day. And so my doctor came and saw me and did a bedside ultrasound. And that's when Reese had foot flipped footling breach and the really dangerous thing about a premature baby being footling breech is if your water breaks and they start to come out, um, there's nothing stopping them. There's like, because there's no bum or head there like right. blocking them. Yeah. So she, you can cord prolapse and she's like, you would have minutes before both of you could die. So that scared us enough that I was like content to, to stay in bed rest on the, in the hospital. Um and then, yeah, with her, I, um, how did that work? Yeah, I just started having contractions. I had three false labors with her. So I would get contractions and then they'd stop and then I'd get contractions and then they'd stop. But the one day I had these contractions in the morning and I phoned Derek cause he wasn't allowed to stay with me on antepartum phoned him at like six in the morning. I'm like, Hey, like, I think the baby's coming this time. You need to get here. By the time he got to the hospital, they had stopped, but I was like, nope, she's coming today. And the doctors were like, I don't think she is. Like I, they give you pain medication, which relaxes your uterus and stops the, stops labor. And they're like, I think we caught it. Like, I think you're good. And I'm like, nah, I don't think so. Like <laughs> she's going to come today. And lo and behold, the little girl that she is, she's just fierce and feisty. Um, she came that night via emergency C-section because she was footling breach and just kind of a strange situation that by the time the OB on call actually saw me, I was, um, like five centimeters and like full on contractions that weren't stopping. And so they were very scared that my water was going to break. And so like you, I had an emergency C-section with her. Um, she was born super aggressively. She was trying to flip when I when they got me into the C-section. And so she had one leg still down in my birth canal and it was stuck with my contractions. But then the other one, because she was trying to flip, it was like up in my ribs. Mm. And so they had a really hard time getting her out. And so when she came out, she wasn't crying. And so same thing with Tate. They take her away. Um, of course, I knew she was a girl with um, from my ultrasounds. And we started our six and a half week NICU stay with her. And so she was born at 31 weeks. Wow. And I, 
I just, I can't all, like, I just feel like, especially because you got the surgery and you did all the testing and you did what you needed to do or what you thought you needed to do. Obviously, science will go mm-hmm. so far in medicine and still sometimes our bodies don't do what we think they should do or what what they say they should do. So I'm not saying that you were like, oh, this is never going to happen again because I don't think that's mm-hmm. what you think. I think you knew better to think that yeah. optimistic. But I do think that you maybe had thoughts and you correct me if I'm wrong that this might not happen again. I might actually carry um, closer to full term, deliver it sort of normal, everything should be good and we won't have to spend the time in the NICU is maybe what you were thinking. Am I right in saying that? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. So, and you know yeah. what's funny is my mother-in-law, I remember her being like, um, I bet Reese's due date was July 18th. And I remember her being like, I bet she's going to be born on July 16th because that's my wedding, our wedding anniversary. And I was like, I don't think so. And she's like, well, when do you think she's going to be born? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I just, I don't think I'm going to be that, like, get that far with her. I just feel like she's going to be a little bit earlier. And people were always like, oh, Taryn, you need to be optimistic. But I'm like, I just knew. I just, just in my gut. I just knew that she wasn't going to be. And something that I think is so important to touch on too, because I think in part of my story, this is very, it's easy for me to skip over this. Um, When we got put on antepartum, those two weeks were so full of grief and grieving for me because something that I think is often skipped over with premature babies, there's so much focus on like, the NICU and the baby themselves. But when you are family planning, you have a vision of what it's going to look like. And we didn't have this like color coded birth plan, but I imagined laying in the bed and breastfeeding my baby Mm -hmm. and having people take pictures of us and having my parents and my sibling, like my brother and my sister-in-law come in the room and hold the baby in the room. And I had all of these things of what I thought that it was going to look like with Tate. And then it didn't. And that was really hard. But then we have this surgery. And exactly like you said, you have high hopes. We were told that the surgery was, um, was successful. And so I imagined Tate like me delivering Reese and then Tate being able to come in and we get pictures on the bed and like I could breastfeed her and our family would, you know, you have an idea of what you want it to look like. And when that doesn't happen, there is a level of grief to it. And I know that so many moms feel so guilty for little, like seemingly small things like I don't know if you can tell, but like I wanted a freaking picture of me and my husband and my two kids in a hospital bed. Like that would have been so special for me because it would have kind of solidified that like essentially that our journey and me going through like that year and a half of surgery and procedures and pain and all of that, it would have made it worth something. Right. And so those two weeks of me being on antepartum, I had people all the time out of love, I'm sure (laughs) saying like, well, this is like a nice way for you to prepare and you can just rest. I'm like, okay, that two weeks was probably the hardest two weeks of my life because my husband couldn't stay with me. Tate wasn't allowed it. Actually, I didn't want 
I wanted Tate to be in there with me, but I didn't want him to see what antepartum was like. Um, I had to, I was eating hospital food basically all the time. Tate was staying with Derek at my brother's house, which was hard on him. He was two and a half. Like there was so much going on and all I could do was grieve the, um, kind of the vision that I had. And that was very, very heavy. That was, those two weeks were so hard on me. And I remember when they told me the doctor was like, with, um, Reese, he checked me and he's like, you know what? You're five centimeters. Yes. You need to go and have the C-section. I almost felt a sense of relief Mm -hmm. because I felt like, okay, the NICU is familiar. Yeah. That is terrifying to me because I know what Reese is about to go through, but we can start our journey and we can get home. Wow. So it was a really, yeah, a really strange feeling. And what I'm hearing is, and I'm sure there's pieces of Reese's NICU, NICU journey, which we won't have time to go into the details, was probably similar but different as well. You know, different medical needs, different mm-hmm. whatever, for sure. But I think maybe the layer, the extra layer that I'm really hearing you speak about is the fact that you had another child and, you know, mm-hmm. and you felt like you were, and I know exactly what that feels like to serve one child while you feel like you're not serving the other child and you are neglecting that child who's still very little and needs you. And mm-hmm. so not only did you have that where with Tate, you didn't have another child. So it was really about That's you right. and about him or now you're in a similar situation but also have another child, you know what you're about to get into. So that's just whether you're prepared or not, that's also scary. You know what you're about to Mm -hmm. see when you see Reese um, or what your journey is about to look like for the next seven, eight, 10 weeks, whatever that might look like. And so I think that just, I can, I can just hear that when you speak about how like that two weeks was the hardest two weeks of your life. And I can't imagine Mm -hmm. it. Um, It's just, I think it's those extra layers and sometimes like knowledge is power but knowledge is also scary sometimes when you Mm -hmm. know too much about what you're about to get into it ignorance is really bliss sometimes when you don't know what you're about Mm -hmm. to get into but when you experience it and then you know you're going to go through that again or a similar journey with extra complications and layers on top of it I can just I can just feel how hard that would be. And I, and I understand on a different level. So I just, that's just incredibly, I'm glad you spoke to it, but I just Mm -hmm. like, how can we support moms more? And like you said, there's always like those kind hearted or like goodwilled people who are really trying to help with their comments. But I do just, you know, a public service announcement is this prop, those probably not the best. Like, you know, no. positive, stay optimistic. Oh, it could be worse. Oh, you know, like, those, look how lucky yeah. you are. You know, you know, like, like none of those words are helpful, useful. The only thing you really, you should say is what do you need from me right now? How yes. can I support yes. you? What can I say? What can I do? Do you need me to look after Tate? Do you need a meal? Do you need me to bring you new clothes and new pajamas? Those are maybe the only few things that you should ever say to someone in that situation. Not advice, yeah. solicited advice, right? Even if it's coming from a good place. Exactly. And the amount of people who have never even seen the inside of a NICU that would say things to me like, 
I know how it feels like I'm currently sitting and trying to decide, like, am I going to my kid's soccer or my other kid's baseball? Like, you're never going to get away from that, that heart tug. And I'm just like, okay, you, that is a privilege. Like, I don't get that. If I'm sitting with Reese in the NICU and pumping every three hours for her and like doing her care, then Tate is at home crying for me because he misses his mom. And if I'm with Tate, then I'm not the one feeding my other child. And she is in a hospital bed by herself. Right. So no, it's not the same getting thing. to choose. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm just like, no, that isn't the same thing at all. Yeah. And I think people just they, sometimes they don't know what to say and they just want to relate to you. And so they say things like yeah. that. And it's just, and those, those comments just aren't useful. And those people don't really get it. And so that's, that's just their way of pretending that they understand what you're going through. Like, oh, you think this is hard to exactly wait till motherhood, right? Like you think that this part of your journey is hard, like wait till they're five and they're six or they're talking back when they're teenagers. And none of that is useful when your child is, you know, at risk and your child might not Mm -hmm. live and you have another child that you're missing out on. So I totally get it. And I just, and it's, I, I don't think you and I are both saying like, we don't like those people. And I, we do, I, no, that's you right. And I both believe that it's coming from a good place, but also I think if we can just educate and advocate and say sometimes, just ask if you don't know what else mm-hmm. to say. What can I do for you? What do you need? And that's probably the best, yes. and the safest thing you could possibly say, um, especially if you're not sure what to say. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree with that. So, um, just for time's sake, I. Um, I, I know we could talk for hours and I'm sure you could speak to, you did talk a little bit about the piece that was a little bit different with Reese's experience, but so how long were you in the NICU with Reese? We were there for just shy of, um, seven weeks. It was like six and a half weeks and like medically they were very similar. Um, they were only a week different. So that whole journey looked very similar, but that, that, differentiating part is just that you add the layer of having another child at home and that just adds so much to it and we were trying to live as a family at the Ronald McDonald house in Saskatoon and like Derek was still working and it yeah that was the really hard part about that was feeling I didn't ever feel guilt through the NICU with Reese because I did a lot of counseling and a lot of work around that but I just felt like I wasn't ever good enough. I wasn't serving anyone in my family enough during those six and a half weeks until we got home. Wow. That's incredible. Like just to go through that twice in such a traumatic experience. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I don't think anything can prepare you for that. So, um, and you might, you might not know this next, the answer to this question, and that's completely okay. But have you thought about, do you and Derek want more children? Um, Is it not necessarily a bridge that you've crossed yet? Is it maybe an opportunity you did bring up fostering? So what does your future motherhood look? Is it, is your family complete in your eyes? Are you open to other possibilities? Where are you at with that? Yeah, I think... (laughs) Reese isn't sleeping through the night yet. She's 14 <laughs> months. And I think once she is, then Derek will be very more willing for more children. Um, 
I more than ever really have it in my heart and know that we aren't done having kids. Um, How that looks, I am so open. I think for right now, we will put having biological children on hold. We would both really like to foster. And so um, something that's really calling to us is fostering NICU babies. And so in a couple months here, once... um, Reese is maybe a little bit older. She's just over a year old. I think we're going to kind of get serious about that and look into that. And if, you know, if that ends up just being like, so what we felt like we were called to do, we would be super happy with that. If that led to an adoption, we would be super happy with that. Um, And I would also be very happy to continue. (laughs) Right now I'm deemed a medical mystery. They cannot figure (laughs) out they're now starting to think that the, that the bicornuate uterine didn't play a role in Tate coming early, oh. but they also know that it's not just an, in, or not, not just because an incompetent cervix also causes preterm delivery, but they don't think that's what it is either. So I would be happy to continue that, but um, I think as of right now, fostering is something like very on our hearts. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of kind of our direction as of today. Oh, I love that. That's great. Well, we'll have to stay tuned for that journey because I yeah. love everything <laughs> about that piece of the journey too. But um, so just um, to wrap up, I just want to thank you so much for being so open, so honest. Um, I know we did touch on the medical pieces of your journey, but I'm just so thankful that you really spoke so openly and honestly um, about the emotional piece and just were honest about what you felt you needed, what you felt you didn't get, what could have been different. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think the thing about the NICU journey is Maybe you were a little bit prepared for it because you went through it once, but you didn't think you would be going through it again. And that's not really something that you know, well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but oftentimes it's not something like, you know, you might know like, okay, you're high risk and you might have a preterm baby. Like that could be a risk and you might have to spend some time in the NICU. But I just, I just think it's a piece of a journey to motherhood and maybe it's similar to other, but it's just really hard to prepare for. It's really hard to like mm-hmm. sit down with someone and say, okay, you could have a child born early and you might have to spend some time in the NICU. So here's what that could look like just so you're prepared. But that's just not something mm-hmm. you talk about because it's, it's somewhat, I don't want to say useless information, but if it's not on your radar, not even something that might come up, that's just not something we talk about. Just like our children yeah. being sick. We don't say, oh, your kid could get sick, you know, when they're four, they could develop this disease. Those aren't just things we talk about until they happen to us, right? And so, and we don't start connecting with those people until it starts to happen to us. But um, perhaps there's a mama listening to this who's sitting in the NICU, or perhaps there's a mama who um, is currently experiencing some complication, isn't at risk at delivering early or whatever that might look Mm -hmm. like. Do you have like a sentiment or advice or maybe advice isn't the right word, but is there anything that you want to say to them, um, not to prepare them, but something that you know, make sure you advocate for yourself or like you're not alone or there is support. Like, is there anything Mm -hmm. you want to say to that woman or mother listening um, or even just someone who might not even know the NICU NICU is in their journey and could be? Um, What would you say to those people? 
Oh, that's a tough one. I know. <laughs> I, I always ask my guests this and every time they're like, this is hard. And now that the roles are reversed, yeah. I'm like, this is freaking hard. It is hard. Um, but I think that the biggest piece that I would say is, <laughs> and this might not, but go to counseling because for me, going to counseling after Tate or finding that person that can be your soundboard is going to be so healing because the, the even if you don't feel like the effects of the NICU are there or those like long-term effects, they are. And it wasn't until I started opening up about seemingly small situations in our motherhood journey that I truly was able to develop the bond that I always desired with Tate. And then same with Reese. So my biggest thing is that you aren't alone, even in in those like those hardest, darkest, loneliest times. It can feel so terrifying and so lonely, but go and find somebody, whether that's a counselor or a fellow NICU mom or um, a mom that has experienced the NICU years ago and just go and talk to them and just get it out guilt-free so that you can really move forward in your motherhood and not have that like that high stress just sitting on you and weighing on you. Totally. Yeah. I love that piece of advice. And, and I think that piece of advice goes beyond just the NICU, like just going Mm -hmm. through anything in motherhood, any hard, messy piece of what you're going through. Um, Therapy and counseling can be life-changing. Talking to somebody and just a professional who can give you tools and resources and the support, you said a soundboard, it's life-changing. You should never have to go through any of those pieces alone. And oftentimes when you think you're, for me, it was a sign of weakness I felt that um, Mm. I just felt like, I'm strong enough to go through this. I don't need therapy. I don't need counseling. But what I didn't realize then is although I thought I was strong enough, pieces of that traumatic um, journey, I think it will eventually come out. It's going to come out. Mm -hmm. It might not come out right away. It always does. Exactly. And it might be a few years down the road or it might be sooner than you expect. And it's if you don't deal with that trauma, regardless of what that looks like, Um, it's going to come out. So I love that advice. Like there's no shame in speaking to somebody, um, especially a professional or even someone like you said, who had been through it, um, reach out. And oftentimes, and within your community and with the coffee and grace community, those women are more than willing to speak to you or talk to you or Mm -hmm. just be your soundboard. Um, and so connect with those moms, connect with those women. And I just love that piece of advice because, I think that is so helpful and so true and I think will just be life-changing. And I know when I um, finally decided to go to therapy way later than I sh- than I should have, not when I was in the thick of it, it was much later after. I'm still thankful I did, but I remember just thinking, man, what a difference this could have made in mm-hmm. that journey. And I just... I was just so upset that I was too proud to go or thought I could handle it on my own, you know? And so I just think there's nothing in life that can prepare you. It doesn't matter how strong you are. That doesn't make you weak because you need support and help. And we could all do that. And I just think that you're such an advocate for that. And, And even listening to your journey, like you sound like a strong, confident, you could handle anything. And it doesn't matter. It's, it's just not, it's not a weakness, 
to get support from a no. professional, right? And and the other piece to that is it doesn't matter what your journey looks like. Right. Like it is so easy for me to look at a 24 weeker mom's journey and be like, man, like my journey was nothing compared to that. But hard is hard. And whether it's the everyday overwhelm um, and stress of motherhood, or if it's losing a child, or if it's going through adoption or going through the NICU, it doesn't matter. Hard is hard. And you deserve and you owe it to yourself to make sure that you're keeping your mental state healthy. Because for so many of us, what happens is we get to the point where our mental state is being compromised because of something that we haven't worked through that all of a sudden our relationships start to struggle. Mm -hmm. And that is when it's like, okay, something needs to change. And for me, that was counseling. And maybe for someone else that looks a little bit different and maybe the timing is different. But just like you said, just understanding that hard is hard. It is never like you are always worth investing in yourself and getting that help. Um, and it's so incredibly important. Yes. I love that. Just, and it's so easy. And I think you do the same thing. And often as women and moms, we do is we always say it could be worse. Like Mm -hmm. someone's going through something worse than me. I should just be grateful. I should be here pregnant, not loving every second of it is really hard to say, knowing that I know a lot of other women and I know, and I know personally how lucky I am, but I think you just feel like it could be worse. Like, how dare I think this is hard when women would kill to be pregnant who can't ever be. And so I think it's so easy, but I love that you said, just, you put it so eloquently, hard is hard and don't compare your heart to someone else's and don't think that you don't have the right or the privilege or the opportunity or Mm -hmm. you deserve to feel good and to feel, yeah, I just, yeah, I just really, that's just such a beautiful way to end. And I think it's just so easy to compare your journey Mm -hmm. and feel guilty that you have it hard too. And we all do in some way. Right. And so, and I think our capacity to deal is all different. Everyone's got different capacities, to Mm -hmm. deal with hard too. And so that's something to realize as well. Yes. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Taryn. Um, I will link up. I encourage you all to go follow Taryn at the messy mama pod. Um, her Instagram community will love it. Um, she shares, um, very openly and candidly, not just about her journey, but she talked a little bit about it at the beginning, just spotlighting other moms who went through hard journeys and just that positive parenting piece. So I have loved tuning in and watching, um, your community grow. And I'm just so thankful that you're sitting with me tonight and sharing your journey with me um, on the Coffee and Grace podcast. So I just can't thank you enough for sharing your story tonight. Well, thanks for having me. I think that advocating for your journey is such an important piece if it's a place that you are at. So I'm just grateful for that chance to be here. <laughs>